Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey everybody, this is Dr. John back with the latest Evolved Caveman Podcast. And my guest today is passionate about wonder. In fact, it's his calling and vocation. As a child, he became focused on paying attention to life and ensuring he'd always maintain a connection to his imagination, which led him to become a poet, a teacher, an author, and then things changed. He realized he'd been living entirely from the neck up, largely disembodied, disconnected from his heart. That awakening launched a lifelong quest to rediscover a deeper, more soulful motivator. It brought him back to wonder as a driving force in his life and eventually as his career. And our guest today is Jeffrey Davis, who has helped thousands of people advance their best, most meaningful ideas into businesses, brands, and books. Jeffrey challenges people not to give up on their ideals and dreams. He writes for Psychology Today and others on the intersections among creativity, work, and human flourishing. He's the author of the new book, Tracking Wonder, as well as the older book, The Journey from the Center to the Page, and other books. And for more info, you can check out his site at trackingwonder.com. Jeffrey, welcome. John, thank you so much for that introduction and for the invitation to be here. Oh, I'm, I'm excited about this one. We had a, 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 our initial talk just got me going, uh, kept me going for a couple of days. So I'm, I'm thrilled about this. So to start off, would you tell us how you became passionate about wonder? What, what was the story kind of leading up to this? Sure. Just a couple of, um, I realized in, in retrospect, right. Uh, what that story is. So there was definitely a moment of inspiration and then inflection. So, uh, for the sake of your readers, I'll, I'll focus on, on maybe those two areas. So as you alluded to, yeah, I had realized um, early on, maybe in my late 20s, early 30s, I was living from the neck up. And yeah, it was actually diving deep into yoga as a, a way of life and, and philosophy of life for a while um, that changed things for me. And I went to South India to study uh, with my teacher and his family of teachers there. Um, who approached yoga just as, as, as I say, sort of like the art of living certain practices to help us live this life in an embodied, um, non-esoteric way. And it was while there that he led me to a book. I was curious about yoga's intersections with creativity. He led me to a book, little known book of yoga philosophy that was seminal to the longest living tradition of yoga philosophy. And at the heart of that book, it's just this passage that references wonder. In Sanskrit, it's vishmayo, vish, V-I-S, related to vision and the way we see. Um, and it, it basically describes that uh, when you recognize, let's say, that any idea of an ultimate reality is right here with this daily reality and the interior reality, then you have perhaps you're characterized by a joy-filled amazement or wonder. So reading that and some of the commentaries had sort of this moment, like sort of a whole body just like, oh, that's actually what I've been pursuing for a long time, um, probably since I was that toe-headed boy um, trying to keep alive his imagination. So that was a moment of inspiration that led me literally on several years of research, still kind of heady 
uh, in the research, but also trying to figure out some, some practices for my own life as well as the people I, I worked with. But it was really the inflection point. So when things started to become crystallized, and that I think will actually be very germane to our conversation today uh, with the Evolve Caveman. A um, couple of years, like just a few years after that, um, I get married. A uh, couple of years after we get married, Hillary and I are like, okay, great, stable relationship for the first time in our lives. We uh, buy a farmhouse together. We're like, oh, stable foundation under our feet for the first time uh, in the Hudson Valley of New York, sort of like our dream house. She has her garden. I have my study and studio. Mm. I have my my version of Walden Woods and Walden Pond out back. And, and so, so uh, it like hit all the checks and more like an 1850s barn and so forth. So we're like, okay, we can build our dreams. We can maybe have a couple of wonderlings in the yard someday. And uh, so, of course, within two years of that, um, one spring, I mean, this was spring, summer, like a course of eight weeks, uh, Hillary has two miscarriages. Um, within weeks of that, I get my first case of Lyme disease, uh, which would be the first of four or more cases wow. of Lyme disease. And for your listeners, maybe they know by now, not a lot new then. Uh, it's a tick-borne disease. It can be very debilitating, just has the strangest mm -hmm. symptoms, right? Physiologically, you feel like something burrowing in your bones. You get brain fog. I felt like I was going second, you know, 70 miles per hour in second gear while trying to move forward. So um, I thought I was through that after the first round of antibiotics. It turns out I wasn't. And just literally, like a week after, I thought, maybe I'm in the clear. Lightning strikes our farmhouse and a freak lightning storm in the middle of July and sends a fire roaring through our dream house, mostly through wow. my studio and study decimates like 300 volumes of books, 20 years of archives, um, any semblance of a little altar for meditation and focus and calmness yeah. and uh, melts my laptop. This is sort of pre-cloud knowledge with my next project on it. Oh. Now, fortunately, you know, fortunately, our 20-year-old cat lived and we were not in the house, you know, strangely at the time. So we're all unscathed, but we would be out of our house, it turns out, for the next 15 plus months while it got completely stripped down to its 1850 bare bones and my whole studio was just leveled um, because that's mostly where it, where it hit. And I was profoundly disoriented. It was like vertigo, just like, wow, what just happened to us just as we thought we were building something. Um, and I went back the next day um, to see, <laughs> this is my frame of reference, of the, what books could I salvage? And uh, so I go back to this uh, study and I'm just looking at this black char of, of books and I'm really trying not to shut down because I know there's a lot of work ahead. I have no idea just how much work was ahead for us, but I'm like, ah. and I'm angry, but I know what I'm angry at. You know, I want to cry, but I can't cry. And uh, so out of the corner of my eye, I see this colorful pulsing. And through one of the holes that the firefighters had knocked in the walls and ceilings to let the flames escape had come in this monarch. And it's just like this one bright, color and this black char. Mm. And I'm not a big sign seeker, but I will tell you, I paused and just for a moment or more, 
everything, all the tension dissolved in me. And I just felt open. That's the way, only way I can just, I felt open. And the sort of like dim reassurance that ultimately everything's going to be okay. It may be a while, but ultimately everything's going to be okay. So that was an important moment because over the next several months, again, like things were hard on, on multiple fronts. Um, Hillary gets pregnant during that time when we're not in her house. So that was like, great. We could deal with our baby, which is better than dealing with insurance adjusters and other stuff. Um, I got curious and, and the Lyme actually had never quite left for the next few years, but I got, I got curious. I was like, okay, you've been devoting a lot of your body of work to, to wonder. It's one thing to track wonder when things are okay. It's a whole other thing. Like, oh, this seems like the real practice. Like what's the relationship between tracking wonder and navigating challenges? So I got curious about that in my own life. And I do what I always do because I write for Psychology Today and other outlets. I started researching this question, how to fulfill innovators. And sort of geniuses of creativity ultimately thrive amidst constant challenge and change. And those questions I really lived for the next several years in researching in areas of innovation and creativity, mindfulness, and human flourishing looked at over 600 innovators uh, in a variety of fields um, in pursuit of these questions, downloaded lots of studies, and used our consultancy, Tracking Wonder, as kind of a living laboratory to ongoingly test out a number of ideas. That was over 15 years ago. Um, so that's what got me into <laughs> this field. And uh, when I first started, I thought, oh, Maybe for the next couple of years, I'll pursue this maybe for a book. But it, as you said, it really is my calling. And I recognized early on, I was like, oh, this is like what I've been seeking all along. And yeah, this is what I'm here for in this iteration. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. I, it, it amazes me because I think it's true for so many of us men that we do live in our heads. And I think that one of the I don't know, life goals, I suppose, in this lifetime is to figure out how to get out of our heads at times and kind of harness the mind and the heart at the same time. Because I think we're socialized growing up to veer away from the heart that is emotion. I, I think that's true too. And I, and I so appreciate that you work particularly with, with men. Um, I think that's very true, although I've seen it very true for women in, in different ways as well. With, with women, quite often, um, they've shared with me, they, they're quite often disembodied in adolescence because things are so awkward for them in adolescence that they get sort of disembodied. Disassociated well, and, and there's research that shows that that happens about 13, that you know, yeah. up until about the age of 12, it's like you can ask them what they think and they'll be like, they'll tell you what they think. After 12 or 13, you ask them what they think and they're like, do you want to know what I think or do you want to know what I really think? And yeah. so they've learned that game and that's, you know, part of the disconnect and where it seems to begin. It is part of the disconnect. A couple of things there is like as, as men and men who may um, be sort of emotionally sensitive, you know, I grew up, I can look back at my, my boyhood and, and sort of see myself at my best being 
more creative than, than competitive, more artistic than athletic, um, sort of quietly rebellious. I was the only boy in my elementary school with shoulder hair, shoulder, shoulder length hair. It was like strikingly blonde and I didn't seem to care. I had psychedelic pants on in kindergarten, didn't seem to care, you know, but I was very quiet. And so I say that because I think also men, many of us learn unconsciously to arm ourselves against that sensitivity. And Mm -hmm. with that armoring just comes a disconnect with the body. So I'm, I'm right there with you. And so, yeah, so much of my work personally and professionally has been the, the somatic intelligence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The emotions and the aspects of cognition, but also just the somatic part of our intelligence has been really important. Well, let's, let's dive into it because I, you know, as you said, you've been working on wonder for some time. And to me, I I put it in the category of positive emotions, positive psychology. Um, And I believe it's so critical for us to have language to describe these internal experiences that we have. I'm really a big fan of this concept of emotional granularity. So how do you define wonder? Yeah, I love that you talk about it's important for us to have the language because I'm right there with you too and your background. Uh, It's so important for us to have language to help us um, sort of map our internal world. Somebody said, oh, you've developed like a cartography of wonder. So to answer your question, this is like a, a kind of plain spoken definition because I want your listeners to say, okay, that's accessible for me or, oh yeah. So wonder is a heightened state of awareness that's brought about by something unexpected that either delights us, disorients us, or both a heightened state of awareness. It can be like instant mindfulness. And we can talk later about how it pauses the fight or flight response to the unexpected. And that's a key. Let me me just reiterate that. Wonder pauses the fight or flight response. And I can tell you, I think in this pandemic, that's all I see people living in is fight or flight response pretty much 100% of the time in many cases. So yeah, sorry to interrupt you. That's okay. There are so many points there in that definition that we can amplify in this conversation, I think, and you've hit on an important one. So, you know, examples, and I'll I'll elaborate on another uh, related definition of wonder in a moment, but right, delights us. That's often what we associate with wonder. So, you know, something surprising that delights us might be some, you know, a bald eagle literally dropped from one of our trees onto a fallen tree in our pond uh, right in the middle of a video conference a couple of weeks ago. That was delightful, a little confusing, but delightful too. Um, Or a turkey walking across the streets in downtown Boston, as somebody shared with me recently, like that's surprising. Um, It can also be like a comment that a coworker says to you that because of what they say and how they say it, suddenly you're able to see something beautiful in them that maybe you hadn't seen before. Mm. That's a potential moment of wonder as well, but it can be disorienting. Not unlike Alice going down the rabbit hole into wonderland. That is not fall la la butterflies and wildflowers. That's a strange world. And it's not unlike what many of us have experienced in one way or another since 2020, early 2020, in the sense of our, our sense of identity, our sense of what's important to us, our sense of what's real gets 
turned inside out, those are potentially moments of wonder if we can navigate them with awareness. So I just want to amplify a complementary definition of wonder that I really emphasize in the book is that it is a quiet disruptor of our biases. It's a quiet disruptor of our biased perception. So we can see again what is real and true, what is beautiful and possible. That could be what is real and true about ourselves, what is beautiful and possible about another human being, our life or work situation, an idea we have, a project we're trying to pursue, or a sense of reality in general. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like that butterfly was like a moment of disruption in my sense of what was real and true and possible altered just for a moment with rippling. And, and I, I love that description of wonder as a quiet disruptor of biases. I, I think that's so it's incredibly powerful if you drill down into it. And, you know, from our prior conversation, both of us majored in philosophy as undergrads. So to make my parents happy, I'm going to make use of my liberal arts education here. I have to ask this question. So I believe it was Jacques Derrida who said that for true growth, what we need is a radical shattering of one's framework. And I've always thought of this on kind of the negative side of the coin, that something traumatic in a negative sense would happen to us that forces the shattering and subsequent rebuilding of your lens through which you see the world. And it struck me from your definition, I guess there was some wonder there, that it seems that to some extent wonder functions in the same capacity on the positive side of the coin. Completely. And I do want to amplify this. It's, it's, yeah, I remember it's, it's beautiful. You mentioned Jacques Derrida. So yeah, I actually um, pursued uh, philosophical hermeneutics in grad school and poetics. So Derrida, um, so this is just for the people interested in philosophy, which wonder is at the heart of, um, was influenced by Martin uh, Heidegger. And Heidegger, right, uh, similarly has, grapes, this, right, has this view that we are sort of thrown into existence, which is such an interesting metaphor. We come into this world sort of thrown into it. And if you think about it, that's disorienting just by itself, right? So wonder is disorienting and delightful, which is why it is hard to categorize as only positive or negative emotions, but what's beautiful. So let's just think about how typically psychologists define positive and negative emotions and why wonder is so unique based on something else we just said. Positive emotions, it's not like good or bad. It's more like what we're attracted to and what we're repelled by. So love typically attracts us or the stimulus. Fear repels us. Wonder holds us in pause. Receive. So whether the stimulus is uh, potentially frightening or delightful, when we're in wonder, we're receiving it. We're in a moment of pause, right? So I find that remarkable. So yeah, to, to go with Derrida, so I'll unpack it just for a moment with Derrida and what you said, because in these moments, right? And I just want your listeners to reflect on some of their experiences from the past two years, um, where potentially their sense of who they were maybe got 
challenged and decentered, so to speak. So the neuro neuroscientist uh, um, Kelly Bukele says that experiences of wonder often decenter our identity, decenter our sense of who we are, and ultimately, so we can recenter a, a new sense mm. of who we are. And I. In my experience in the tracking wonder community, and as I have my pulse on our international community, that's what a lot of people have and are going through in the past two years. It's like this decentering of who they are and ultimately a recentering. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, well, I don't know if I want to go into Heidegger too much, but you know, <laughs> one of the things that fascinates me about Heidegger was there was a period in his career where he concluded that everything he said or wrote would be misinterpreted. So he pretty much stopped communicating for a while. And again, Heidegger was very big on the power of language. And to me, I think language is incredibly powerful. And I'm trying to get that idea out to people that we need to gain a greater emotional vocabulary, not only to understand our own experience, but to communicate it with others. It's so true. It's so true. And I know we'll probably talk about um, what I surprisingly, what I didn't set out to identify, but what I did identify in my body of research and sort of this living laboratory at Tracking Wonder are six facets of wonder. And, you know, I really recognize that, oh, just as if, if you go to a therapist and the therapist is helping you say, oh, that's rage or that's guilt or that's shame. These six facets of wonder, I want us to have language for the emotions of possibility really mm -hmm. and so we can say oh that's what that is or that's what that was and oh i could actually develop a skill set to track more of those emotions sort of up the wonder ratio so to speak so yes i just love this so let's, and we'll get into those work. six components of wonder yeah, in just yeah. a minute we'll leave that as a cliffhanger for a few minutes good but and well, let's stick with philosophy for one more minute. Okay, so okay. you mentioned Rene Descartes, which, you know, and he, I think, did us a disservice hundreds of years ago by saying, I think, therefore I am, because that kind of reinforces that disembodied head approach to life that many of us have. You know, I, it, when I was in college, I was like, oh, yeah, that's me. You know, I, I think, therefore I am. And it, you know, completely emotionally ignorant at that time in my life. But the other thing that was surprising is you mentioned Rene had his own take on wonder. And to you, it was quite foundational. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I'm going to connect dots with what you said about Heidegger, because Descartes' work has certainly been misinterpreted. Uh, and he's certainly been maligned as a figure expressly for that, that statement. Um, the more I got into Descartes, into Descartes, the more I was in wonder with Descartes and able to see him and sort of bust my biases for Descartes and what we often talk about as Cartesian rationality. Turns out he was a fascinating, very optimistic human being who was certainly under the throes of the church and trying to be a philosopher, you know, uh, still beholden to the church. He was a lawyer who um, used his services in part for um, people who couldn't pay for his services. He was an advocate for women's education. Um, so he had this um, ongoing correspondence with a young Queen Elizabeth of Bohemia, for whom the current Queen Elizabeth is actually named after all these uh, centuries. She would write him in detail about his work and his philosophy. 
he describes her as being the one person who really understands her uh, his philosophy. She was emotionally distressed. She was brilliant, apparently, musically, intellectually, literature, writing, and so forth. But she was always emotionally distressed and emotionally sensitive. And she was writing him like, if you say, like, the um, mind influences the body, but the body doesn't influence the mind, where does that leave me? Like, how can I work with my emotions? And he really wrestled openly with this question. He was not close. He carried on this correspondence for years with her. I mean, this is a woman whose father was beheaded. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was a little traumatic experience uh, she had. And he ended up writing the last book of his life. He thought he was going to live to be 100. Um, he thought if people who followed his discourse in thinking, they would be liberated and they also would have longevity. He was living during the plague or living during something worse now. Um, but he, he died at, um, I think, about 49 or 50 years old. The last book he wrote was actually dedicated to her. And it's on the emotions. It's called, um, in, in English, The Passions of the Soul. And this book, if you read it carefully, it's full of contradictions, but you see Descartes really wrestling with emotions. Mm -hmm. And it's in that book, he is looking at emotions and, their and our physiological response to them and a certain stimuli. And he is prescient in terms of psychology in 1649 with limited resources. And uh, he identifies wonder as the first of all emotions for a couple of reasons. One, he identified that there's no um, attraction or repulsion. There's no fight or flight mm. response either when we experience wonder. And he says that wonder has no opposite emotion. You might put love and hate and you know other yeah. opposites, but he says wonder has no opposite either. And it gives rise to the other emotions. Now, today, anthropologists, psychologists, philosophers corroborate much of what he's saying, that we're each born wide-eyed with wonder. And it usually is very visual. Beginning, just look at most infants. It's very visual. Um, we're born wide-eyed with wonder. And this experience of wonder gives rise to other focused emotions like love, compassion, gratitude, um, generosity. It does naturally wane. And you identified the 13-year-old piece. It does naturally wane for us as we grow up, in part neurologically and Is it naturally wane or is it that it's socialized out of us to, a, to an extent? I think the common story is that it's socialized out of us. The common story, um, I love Sir Ken Robinson's work and I loved his TED talk that schools kill creativity. I think that was mm -hmm. oversimplified because mm -hmm. neurologically, our brains are shifting. We're developing more of a frontal lobe. We're developing parts of our brain that make us aware and self-conscious and of relationships with others. We're developing awareness of our own emotions. Awareness of awareness is a gift and it's a curse. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I have 12-year-old um, Wonderling daughter uh, who was born during what I just described earlier. And I have a seven-year-old Wonderling daughter. They are both amazing human beings, two different geniuses coming into this world. But I'm watching the 12-year-old go through just these very things in her own quiet, unique way. I'm watching 
how her seven-year-old wonder is different from her 12-year-old wonder. She's still wondrous, but I'm watching the self-consciousness. And, um, and I can say it's not being enculturated out of her. I'm just watching this sort of natural complexity, emotionally complex. For many of us, though, I will say with so many people, men, women, and non-binary people that I've worked with, certainly part of culture can contribute to eliminating wonder sometimes as early as eight or nine, whether it's from trauma or just like some people I've worked with who are first-generation immigrants and their fathers are like, look, nine years old, study. This is what I came here for, like get to work, you know, stop the play. I've worked with lots of people um, who've had that story. So I just want to offer that more complex element. The beautiful thing, John, is that I can say my community is testament is that we each, regardless of background, have the capacity to reclaim experiences of wonder. Yeah, I, I was just curious in your response there, because I, I think that for me at this point in my career, in my life, I think that one of the goals is for us to try to return to simple pleasures that we were well acquainted with as you know, a five-year-old, seven-year-old. And I think to get back to some of those positive emotions that we had by birthright at a young age. But then I think for a variety of reasons, as you say, we get perhaps disconnected from or unfamiliar with. It's so true. It, it, it's so true. And, and your work is, is, is so meaningful in this regard um, because the cultural forces, right. That we've inherited um, in this country, but not only in this country for the past 150 or more years, particularly um, have encourage certain behaviors and certain qualities. We've been fed a certain narrative about what qualities we need to foster, especially as men historically, in order to not just survive, but succeed and accomplish mm -hmm. and have a quote, successful life. And that's actually coming out of even a very incomplete story to go with just the, the metaphor of the name of your podcast, a very incomplete story of what qualities have helped the human species survive and thrive over the millennia, right? You know, I grew up mm -hmm. hearing not Darwin's, but Herbert Spencer's version of survival of the fittest, you know, when you got to mm -hmm. be competitive and sort of cutthroat and so forth. And it turns out that's incomplete. Like biologists and anthropologists and psychologists look now over the traits that have helped us Live over the millennia, and it turns out these other more positive qualities you're encouraging are what have helped us thrive. And so, if people like you can help leaders and people in the workplace and and people at home say, you know what, these other qualities of generosity and warmth can help us thrive. Let's do that. Well, and, and you know, Dr. Keltner has a great book on that, "Born to Be Good," uh, from UC Berkeley. And great book. And it, it's interesting though, because I still run into CEOs, executives, where I'm like, you know, hey, you need to take a look at this. This is important stuff. If you're interested in creativity, if you're interested in innovation, generating new ideas, and some still will be like, yeah, that's kind of hippy dippy shit. Definitely. I, I swear Absolutely. that's an exact quote. Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah, I've gotten it. Can you imagine? Like I'm chief wonder maker, uh, the CEO of Tracking Wonder. Can you imagine? <laughs> you know, when I came out in 2010, and my father-in-law. Well, I hope that you're not wearing psychedelic pants from kindergarten. Yeah. <laughs> that would exactly. be even worse. You know, right, right. <laughs> you know, so definitely, I knew what I was up against. I knew all the biases yeah. I was up against, and I write about this in the book. You know, the early chapters are the biases against wonder that are part of our culture. So yes, that seems. CEO, that executive, I, I've spoken to the same ones. Um, uh-huh. They're part of, right? They're part of this culture that we've all inherited. So that's our frame of reference. Yeah, positive psychology. That's hippy dippy stuff. That's not going to work. Happiness. But yeah, yeah. But I have to say, it's a different conversation than when we launched Tracking Wonder in 2010. The different conversation, even John, if this book had come out. Three years ago, I think it would have been received differently. Now I have CEOs, I have heads of tech companies calling us. Yeah. Because I think just the past two years have disrupted our default assumptions collectively. So yeah. if we're fortunate, we're living some really important questions and being in more wonder and curiosity, if not bewilderment together. So well, you know, it'd be funny to talk to that CEO. <laughs> when I remember getting into positive psychology back in, you know, 2004, 2005, and that's what I really wanted to teach people. And it was really lukewarm at that point in time. And I think, you know, hopefully we're just riding the crest of the wave because I, I do sense more and more change, more and more people open to that change. And, and I think it, it doesn't, there's nothing more critical then learning how to incorporate more positive emotions, more meaning into your life. I, how can the world become a worse place from that? I think it can only become better. So let me, let me ask you this. One of the things that you mentioned in your book is this concept of the bias box. And mm-hmm. so speak a little bit to how wonder kind of disrupts our innate bias box. I love, yeah, that you mentioned that. So, uh, and this is in the chapter on connection, which is one of the six facets of one, uh, of wonder. Um, and I pair the facet of wonder connection with the facet of wonder admiration. These two facets are the facets that are relational and social. And I have to say another surprising part of my work was just how important experiences of, of wonder are socially and relationally. So I just wanted to give your listeners yep. a little con- context here. Um, because in the in the chapter on connection, so connection as a facet of wonder is speaking to our longing to belong or our yearning to sort of sync up with other people with a shared mission, a shared cause, um, shared emotion, shared emotions. Yes, absolutely. So, um, so the bias box is a metaphor I use. In part, I, I describe um, the adaptive unconscious developed and really um, furthered through the work of Timothy Wilson, um, um, cognitive uh, psychologist. The adaptive unconscious is the idea. Again, thinking about your podcast, The Evolved Caveman. I just love that. I love that name. Um, the adaptive unconscious is in part the idea that about 95% of what we consider the conscious of consciousness is unconscious and is in part biologically and physiologically based. So about 95% of cognition is unconscious 
And it's influencing about 5% of what we consider to be rational consciousness. So our physiological system, our heartbeat, our digestion, what we dreamed last night, what we experienced 15 years ago, what we all of the sensory stimulation our brains have taken in just today unconsciously is influencing this very moment of what we think is conscious rationalism. So, so we innately have biases. We just innately do. Um, if we didn't, uh, if, if we didn't have an automatic categorizer every morning, we would wake up and say, Oh, what is this I'm laying on? Oh, this is a bed. Oh, this is the floor. Right? So, our brains have to categorize things innately in order for us just to survive and continue to learn. And they also categorize and box in other people. You walk into a social situation, you walk into a big room of like 100 people, most of whom you don't know. And a part of your adaptive unconscious is like, who are the friends? Who are the foes? Who are the friends? Who are the foes? And there's this bias toward who's like me in some ways, right? So if we're not aware, that's where we will be drawn. So we have these automatic bias boxes. Um, can I give you? Uh, can I give your listeners a quick story about this, please? Okay. So um, Questlove, he is an amazing musician. Uh, he's like the co-frontman for the Roots, uh, mm-hmm. um, which you can find on right the Jimmy Fallon show. And uh, yeah. so so. You know, to be a musician on the Jimmy Fallon show, you have to be really versatile and really open to accompanying other musicians who come on. So Questlove describes how he was noticing, like early in the show, it was a certain period where it's like one band after another sort of sound sounded the same that he called Brooklyn Hipster. And it was, you know, it's just like one band after another sounded sort of like this Brooklyn hipster found that was kind of quote authentic and you know ready a little bit and so forth and uh so so Questlove admits like he'd sort of boxed in all of these bands that he was having to accompany on uh on the Jimmy Fallon show and this one group comes on they're like from Brooklyn he's like okay another Brooklyn hipster band they're called the Dirty Projectors and they start this performance a cappella these three vocalists are doing all of these vocalist aerobatics. It's sort of like if birds and murmuration could be vocalized, this is sort of what it would sound like. Yeah, it was just like stunning. And he and his band members were convinced there were some behind-the-scenes synthesizer things going on. (laughs) They're like, there's no way you can do that with just your voice. So after the show, they dropped by his dressing room and would you do that for us right here? And they did. And his bias box was busted. And he realized like he had boxed them in and he was so open and curious. He brought them on for future collaborations. And he's like, you know what? You always have to be just open and curious. So that's a long way of saying our bias, we have bias boxes. We do. So I don't pathologize bias. I normalize it. But the more aware we are of how we just constantly box in strangers or partners whose sentences we think we can complete because we're overly familiar with them, then we can actively bust our own bias boxes. So I hope that's helpful. 
Uh, yeah, I love the explanation and the story. And I think, you know, there's there's unconscious and there's conscious biases. There's biases we're not even aware of. And one of the things that interested me in that regard was, okay, where are my unconscious biases in terms of race? Mm-hmm. And so I had to ask myself, because I, you know, the connection piece is big to me. And I I just love going out and talking with strangers just for that two or three minute connection. I'm just curious, can I connect with this person? And I had to ask myself, okay, so if I go into Starbucks or Safeway or a line somewhere, who am I most willing to talk to and who don't I talk to? And the answer to that last question is, that's where my unconscious biases are. Absolutely. And so then I could attack and kind of go after with curiosity and and wonder, let's try and connect with some of these people that I don't normally connect with. I love that. So I I invite people to do a variety of experiments in this regard, right? So they can approach it with more curiosity, right? To do what you're suggesting, which is just like take a bias inventory throughout the day of Mm -hmm. people that you meet. What are some automatic biases you might have? How did you bust those biases where maybe somebody surprised you? But I love what you're saying. You're, You're identifying your biases toward whom you're drawn to. I've noticed I have sometimes an unfamiliarity bias. Like I'm drawn to toward people who don't seem like me. <laughs> so mm, yeah. I, yeah. So I've noticed that, but I also have this practice. My 12 year old daughter's noticed. She's like, you talk to everybody. I'm like, yeah, it's uh-huh. just a way to be curious and make a connection with the person at the register and so forth. And well, it's a win-win. If you can make a connection, which you can most of the time, you both walk away with a slight positive emotional boost. And if you multiply that by thousands of interactions, it slowly, you know, that, that positive emotion accumulates in that bucket of positive emotions. I so agree. It's a and big I, deal. And the other end of it, though is to and and so when i've led workshops like i i can think of a workshop with like 90 entrepreneurs from around the world and i led them through some of this work and we did some wonder talks like up close where somebody just listened and just opened up instead of sized up like powerful connections and tears but that was with strangers where i think what i'm really curious about is this work applied to people, and this is kind of your area because I think you work with relationships and, and partners. Mm-hmm. What happens when you practice this with people you're so familiar with, you think you know them, right? You think you know them, you think you can complete their sentences, but can you be open and curious enough to bust all of your baggage by boxes with that person? Yeah. All right. So I'm, I'm aware of time and yes, I, I mean, I've greatly enjoyed this conversation and in the back of my mind, I'm like, shit, now we got to get to work. Um, so, <laughs> so, so let me get to some, some very important questions. One of the ones that I had initially was how is wonder different from awe? Mm, yeah. So let me go through the six facets of wonder for your list. Okay. And that, that was my next question. So please. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So think of wonder also as a multi faceted gem, multifaceted. So it has many sides to it. This gives you some different entry points into just how accessible wonder is. So um, I think of these facets of wonder, these six facets of wonder in terms of three pairs. And they, they can have different effects according to these pairings. The first two are openness and curiosity. 
Openness is like the wide sky facet. It's when you really foster a radical openness to new experiences, new ideas. This is really important for those of you who are thinking about a new career or a new path or a new endeavor to, to foster what I call a, an intelligent naivete, an intelligent naivete where you admit you don't knew, know things and you move forward anyway. Second is curiosity then. This is the rebel facet. This is the proactive cousin of wonder. So it's pursuing new knowledge. It's learning by doing. It's asking more questions than pretending to know it all. And asking questions sometimes that challenge the status quo that can get you into trouble. This is why I call it the rebel Mm -hmm. facet. These two facets are really important to help your listeners learn to respond to inevitable challenges more creatively, and less reactively. This goes to our theme of the fight or flight response. Something happens to us unexpected, whether it's computer crash or we get an email or whatever, and we have a natural reactive response. How quickly can we pause that reactivity and be curious, right? Then we broaden our capacity to come up with more creative solutions, whatever the challenge may be. The second pair, what people don't often think about when they think of wonder is bewilderment and hope. Bewilderment is wonder's disorienting facet. It's what I call the deep woods facet. And this is what we were talking about earlier with Derrida Mm -hmm. and Heidegger. It's when our sense of identity is disoriented, or even we're in the middle of a project that we were so excited about in the beginning, we can't find our way out. Can we fertilize instead of pathologize profound confusion with curiosity so that we ultimately get through breakthroughs, whether creative breakthroughs or personal breakthroughs. And then hope is the rainbow facet. It's not wishful thinking. It's not just like, oh, I'm going to just hope things get better. It's a very active, proactive facet of wonder that sometimes comes about when things like a butterfly appear in adverse situations and we actively move forward toward a possible better future. These two facets, and I mean, your area of interest can help us build resilience and fortitude in times of uncertainty and even crises. The third pair is uh, connection and admiration that we alluded to earlier. These are the social and relational dimensions. And so I'll just say admiration is the mirror facet. The root of the word admiration is M-I-R-A. It's Latin, means wonder. It's the same word we get for mirror and Miranda, um, even miracle. Uh, But I define admiration as a surprising excellence for someone's character or craft that inspires the best in us to come forward, right? So these are different ways into tracking wonder, building a skill set to up your wonder ratio. So what I'm hoping people listening are coming away with are, oh, wonder's accessible to me today. This leads us to your question. Um, I know, I know Docker, Dr. Keltner. I um, um, knew him when Born to yeah, Be you were on the podcast for came you. out and, and uh, he, um, so he and I were talking early on, you know, maybe 2006, or seven about his seminal research in awe, which is just fantastic out of UC Berkeley for listeners who don't know. And um, so he's done seminal 
work on awe. And what wonder and awe are closely related. They're cousins, they're kin, so to speak. But let's just think about it in terms of scale. Think of wonder in terms of being cracked open to possibility by something the size of a butterfly versus the size of Tyrannosaurus rex or the Grand Canyon, which is awe, right? So awe is wonder sort of larger than life cousin. And it's often a matter of scale where we feel small in comparison to what's arousing the awe, but that can be good. It can be good because it can be humbling. Mm. We recognize, oh my gosh, I'm not the center of the universe. <laughs> We're refreshing. <laughs> so awe has profound benefits similar to awe. I mean, similar to wonder, even physiologically and psychologically, but it's often a matter of scale. So I want people to come away saying, oh, I could actually track wonder and build a skill set to track wonder today. Or it's a little harder to track awe outside of listening to really stunning music or watching dazzling art um, or, you know, traveling somewhere in a natural surrounding that other people don't always have access to. Well, yeah, thank you for going through the six facets and differentiating wonder from awe. I love that distinction. And I wanted to head a little bit to, you know, positive emotions. And I love, I think it's Barbara Fredrickson's description of positive emotions as fleeting, fragile, quiet. Mm. I, I think of them as whispering to us. They're, they're mm. subtle. And, and how, how do we go about recognizing when we are experiencing wonder so that we may better savor it? This is a great question. And thanks for bringing back that description because Fredrickson was early on this path, as you know, and she certainly was. Uh, yeah, she's amazing. She was influential in my early tracking. So this brings us back in part to somatic intelligence, actually. Mm -hmm. And so one exercise is to differentiate how you experience physiologically, cognitively, openness versus closeness. So when you feel open in your mind, how does that so these are some good queries, and I, I kind of laid these out in one of the early chapters, too, with a, a sort of chart. And this, actually, what I'm saying also came from some conversations with Docker, uh, because okay. Docker's, Docker's work has been so seminal, and <laughs> I was irritating him with some research questions. I was like, go back to your lab with these questions. He was like, yeah, that's good. So, um, But I don't have his research team to do it. So yeah, right. he, you know, he has been brilliant in identifying how certain emotions elicit physiological responses, mm -hmm. right? So wonder, you know, the, the pupils dilate, the eyes widen, um, the vagus nerve sometimes is, is stimulated. My response is like, well, how can you further track openness in the mind? When your mind feels open, what does that feel like even in the temples? What does that feel like emotionally? And when you feel open in the body, like your nervous system feels open, what does that feel like in the neck and shoulders? What does that feel like in, in your chest region? And we, you do this type of inventory, this is a way to start detecting on a daily, every two hour basis when you're in the middle of your workday, am I open or am I closed? And it's not that closed states are always bad. We need mm -hmm. intense focus, right, to be in that closed state. 
but you can foster the sense of openness just starting at the physiological and cognitive level. So that's a beginning. That's a beginning. Well, and one of the things that I've experienced, and I experienced it when we first spoke, was cognitively, it feels like fireworks going off in my head. Like there's so many thoughts and associations, and it's hard to just pick out one direction at any given moment. That is, that is that- definitely, that's cognitive wonder. Yes. And I'm, I'm glad we're actually distinguishing because often if I say, when was the last time you had an experience of wonder, the majority of people will identify like a sunrise or sunset or something they see in nature or with a child or an animal, but we can experience it in our minds and we can experience it in relationship. But yes, that is a way to identify like, oh, this is wonder. It's like, I feel open. I feel expansive. So, you know, I often say my job is to help you or your team feel emotionally buoyant and cognitively expansive in times of challenge and change. So when you feel that expansiveness, that's a sign, yeah, that you are experiencing wonder. But if you also are experiencing some moment of just strange confusion, right? That's potentially a moment of wonder too, of bewilderment. Right. It's just a little more on the disorientation side instead of the the light side. I have an acronym. Maybe that would help um, people oh, as well. Let's kind of get started. So dose. Always. Think of a yeah, think think of a dose of wonder. D-O-S-E is just like an entry point to tracking wonder in your experience today. So D stands for disrupt the default. Disrupt the default pattern or some of what I call a downer pattern sometimes. So a default pattern could be just a pattern of your mind, like something, a part of your mind is constantly telling yourself about yourself, an idea you have, your life situation, or a default pattern could just be like going through the to-dos, going through the tasks, right? It's just like, I've got some time on my hands. I'm just going to keep working. That can be a default pattern. So detect that default and then disrupt it. And you disrupt it by just opening to it, like we're saying. So O stands for open to feeling it, open up to feeling it. And just like, oh, okay, yeah, there I am going through the default. And third is to seek the surprise. So if my default is to wake up in the morning and check notifications on my phone, like, oh, there I am doing that again. And what happens? I feel like, you know, I've eaten a carton of ice cream first thing in the morning. Like that does not make me feel good. (laughs) I'm opening up to it. So let me see. Let me do something else now. Let me step outdoors for just a few minutes and look up at the sky, no matter how cold it is where I live and see what happens. And if I feel a little more expansive and open, it's like, oh, that was interesting. And E stands for expand the moment, extend, rather extend the moment just by observing it, maybe writing it down, what your experience was so that you build body memory with that experience. So DOSE. And and I love that. So DOSE, D-O-S-E, thank you. One of the things that strikes me just in kind of wrapping up here is that habituation seems to be the antithesis or the destroyer of wonder. You know, any, like I'm thinking of going, driving the same way to work every day right? There's no wonder in that. So if you can even just go around the block or take a slightly different path or walk a different path than you normally walk, 
those are things, concrete examples of ways to increase your wonder. Absolutely. In the book, after every chapter, I lay, out, I lay out specific exercises. But yes, in the openness chapter, um, I recommend traveling within an hour of where you live um, once a month on the weekends. Like just yeah. go to some place, not even that far away, right? See your town or city through the eyes of a tourist, right? Well, yeah. and it's it's the difference between like, I know people that travel to the same timeshare every year. Right. You know, they go exactly. to Long Beach every yeah. year. Yeah. That is going to not help your wonder. That's, Whereas if you go to someplace new, you're taking in new information. And I, I mean, I think that travel to new places, whether near or far, is a tremendous way to facilitate more wonder. I do too. I'll leave your listeners with this. Think about how you can shape your day to track your wonder, beginning, middle, and end. What's one thing you could do in the morning to disrupt one default habit or default pattern? One thing. Test it out. Experiment. Middle of the day. What's one thing you could do to take a wonder break? Set a timer at a certain time of day. You'll wonder, why is that timer going off? And set it on your app. And step outside, step away from the screen, whatever your default task orientation is in the middle of the day, step away. I do this with teams also. What's your default way of starting a meeting? Can you disrupt that? Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end of the day, what's a way you could perhaps reflect at the end of the day on three highlights from the day and actually jog your memory and force yourself to identify three good highlights from the day? My God, Jeffrey, it strikes me that you are truly a rebel trying to disrupt everyone's habitual patterns. It's frightening. <laughs> Dangerous. It gets me in trouble. <laughs> hey, so Jeffrey, tell people where they can get a hold of you. Where can they get the book? Where can they reach you? That is, that's great. Yeah, they can go to trackingwonderbook.com for information about the book. Um, trackingwonder.com, they'll learn more. You, you'll get access to hundreds of free articles on topics related to what we've been discussing. Um, they can also go to trackingwonder.com slash podcast bonus, um, uh, where they can take a, a free Wonder at Work assessment, download the first chapter of the book, and also check out my column on psychologytoday.com, Tracking Wonder. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I have really, really enjoyed this, and I, I appreciate the, the blossoming friendship. I agree. Thanks. Let's stay connected for sure. I would love that. And that is it for this edition of the Evolved Caveman podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved what you heard, please feel free to rate, review, and share it. If you didn't like it, you don't need to do a damn thing. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 